You're listening to Salmon Farming Inside and Out, a podcast series brought to you by Aquaculture North America. This podcast is sponsored by Imperial 75, a cargo branded feed product. As a high purity, high protein corn concentrate, Imperial 75 gives you more freedom to formulate, more freedom to innovate, and the power to achieve more. Find out more at imperial75.com. Well, welcome everyone to season two of the Salmon Farming Inside and Out podcast. We brought you 12 episodes last year. Hope you listened to them all. And uh, we're going to bring you season two over the next 12 months. And I should say that I'm going to be your only host this year. My name is Ian Roberts, and I've been a salmon farmer for about 31 years. You know, last year we kind of stayed domestic. We stayed within North America. And uh, this year we're going to go international. On every second podcast, we're hoping to travel around the world. And uh, in this upcoming podcast, we're going to travel to Tasmania, way down under. And and to do this, I also wanted to bring in the perspective of uh, a young demographic from North America to kind of see what's important to them and, and what kind of questions I should ask our international guests. So today we're inviting on the show... Uh, Michelle Franz, who is uh, in her day job as manner of communications for uh, and partnerships and community for the BC Salmon Farmers Association. And uh, she, she nightlifes as the co-founder and co-director of the Young Salmon Farmers of British Columbia. So Michelle, welcome to uh, our first episode of season two. Thanks, Ian. I'm very excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, really appreciate it. So very briefly, because we just got a couple of minutes with you to uh, introduce kind of today's episode. But uh, tell me quickly about the Young Salmon Farmers of BC. Yeah, so the Young Salmon Farmers of BC were a group of individuals under 35 who work in all aspects of the salmon farming supply chain in British Columbia. Uh, So whether that be individuals who work out on the farms, in the hatcheries, in transportation, veterinarians, fish health experts. Uh, So just really just a variety of people who really represent the sector quite well. And we're just individuals who are very passionate about the sector. We want to promote the sector, talk about it, and just help educate people about the sector. Uh, What we found specifically on social media is there's quite a misrepresentation of salmon farmers in British Columbia and what we do and, and who we look like. And so as the majority of salmon farmers, you know, the the sector is majority under 35, two thirds of the sector in BC is under 35. And so uh, we want to be a part of this conversation around um, improving the education around the sector. So we took it upon ourselves to to form a group of young, passionate people who work in these rural coastal communities, who um, have either moved to these rural coastal communities or grew up in these communities and just really want to be a part of having a proactive and positive conversation around the sector while also challenging the sector as well, just to um, push itself when it comes to young employees and and what we want to see as the future of salmon farming as well. So we've been really well received, I would say, by management and leadership in the um, salmon farming sector in British Columbia. And um, 
you know, people are really interested to hear what we have to say and, and have the input um, come from us in terms of what we want to see as, you know, different types of innovations and what's important to us. So it's been uh, really great. We've, we've established ourselves in uh, 2020, I believe. Uh, so we've been going for a few years, but last year was the first year we received funding from BCSFA. So we were able to attend more events, be more proactive and just be, have more of a, a voice. Oh, that's great. And and I look forward to meeting some of your uh, your co-members uh, of the group in, in upcoming episodes. So today, uh, and by the way, I should add that your social media and the young professionals or young salmon farmers of BC, if people aren't following that on social media, please go to it now and follow it. There's some great information there. So well done in, in communicating aquaculture to the, the larger audience. But for today... Uh, we're going to travel down under, unfortunately, only virtually. You don't get to go, uh, and neither do I. But I'm going to be talking to uh, a fellow named Luke down at uh, Salmon Tasmania uh, about everything uh, happening in Australia. So from a North American perspective and a young salmon farmers of BC perspective, what would you like me to ask Luke during the interview? I would love to know from Luke, you know, as in BC, we see a majority of young people work in the sector. And is that the same type of demographic we're seeing in Tasmania for salmon farmers? Is the uh, industry mostly made up of young people? And if so, are they seeing more young people want to be involved and active and having a voice as part of the sector and getting more vocal? And if that is the case, again, you know, what are they doing to help support young voices wanting to be proactive in this space and, and communicate what the sector actually looks like and, and what the farmers look like? Um, so I'm just, it's mainly just interested to know if those conversations are happening and and if so, you know, what are those conversations looking like and are people supportive of that? Well, that's great. I'll, I'll look forward to asking Luke uh, those questions and and we'll see uh, what uh, what's the situation down in Australia. So, Michelle, thanks a lot for helping me introduce our first episode of season two. And uh, we'll introduce you to today's guest. Thanks again, Michelle. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm excited. We're uh, we're in Tasmania. Uh, I'm not actually, but uh, I, I wish I was, given that we're recording this in February. And that means it's summertime uh, down down under. So I'm uh, I'm I'm pleased, uh, really pleased to be joined by Luke Martin, CEO at Salmon Tasmania. Welcome to the podcast, Luke. G'day, Ian. Thanks for having me. And it is uh, even for Tasmania, which is not generally known as the uh, the warmest part of Australia. It's still a you know very nice 25 Celsius today. So we're right in the middle of the summer conditions. So you know, got to make the most of it whilst we can. That sounds lovely. You know, I, I have, um, being Canadian myself, I have a few colleagues that have uh, ventured down there and, and are working in the industry. And, well, they've probably been down there for 20 years. So I know a bit about the the, uh, the country uh, and Tasmania specifically, but I've never been there. So for podcast listeners uh, here in North America, uh, if we were to get off the plane in Hobart, uh, which mm. I believe, is that the capital of Tasmania? Yeah, I hope capital city. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What um, just paint us a picture of you know what it would feel like, what it would sound like uh, this time of the year uh, as we as we get off the plane into Tasmania. Tassie's a it's very different to the rest of Australia by being an island, but the and and it's got an identity all to itself that's probably I think symbolic of most island-based economy communities around the, around the world. So um the thing about tassie that i think people are a bit surprised about is it's a lot larger than i think people see when they look at a map they um, think when they look at australia and they see the, the mass of the mainland and they see this little island 
at the bottom, um, heart-shaped island. Um, they probably think it's a little smaller, but it's it's actually about two thirds the size of England. So it's a lot bigger on the inside than it, than people perceive. Um, I guess it's all relative for Canadians, like it is for Americans. But um, it's quite a large, you know, a lot larger island. It's about five hundred and fifty thousand people um, live across the island in in communities ranging from Hobart, which is the capital city, which is population about two hundred and fifty. So about half the half the population lives in a major city and. And the rest are dotted around um, around the island, and and it's the most decentralised community in Australia. So, um, lots of regional communities, and I guess that's where you bring in the salmon um, connection first and foremost. Is that uh, it's a it's an industry, it's a state that has a lot of you know, small, dispersed, traditional communities that have relied heavily on agriculture, um, on forestry, um, a little bit of mining, um, and, and in modern eras, those sort of communities have pivoted now towards obviously the service economy and tourism and hospitality, um, and increase, and also obviously aquaculture has become a big part of it for a lot of them. So um, in terms of what you'd expect, very green, um, very mountainous, beautiful harbour, um, uh, beach views. Um, uh, one of the, the unique features about Tasmania is that it is the second most land protected mass on the planet behind Antarctica. So about 50% of the island is in some form of uh, nature reserve or the Tasmanian Wilderness World Heritage Area, which is um, makes up about a third or quarter of the state. So it's very green, very um, very mountainous and beautiful um, and but also got a pretty pretty vibrant uh, community and um, and as I say, very proud of their own identity. Um, you're, a you're a Tasmanian first, you're Australian second, and we do we do enjoy that little bit of separation from the mainland. And you know, for 150 years, Tasmania's been the butt of Australians' jokes a lot of the time. Um, and over the last 10 years, uh, a lot of Australians have now discovered that Tasmania is a pretty great place. So certainly during COVID, um, a lot of uh, mainlanders moving down and. Um, and increasingly, things like just lifestyle, um, climate, um, refugees are just going to become a, a bigger part of it. So Australia suddenly, uh, uh, Tasmania suddenly become very vogue. That's uh, fascinating. I should introduce you to a Newfoundlander here in Canada because you'd have a lot to uh, talk about and a lot of uh, uh, a cultural uh, background as well, but about being the butt of jokes in Canada as well. So uh, yeah. that would be would be a good conversation. Um, before we get into the details on, on the business and a little bit about the history and Salmon Tasmania specifically, can you just tell us a bit about yourself? I know you're fairly new on the job as CEO, mm. uh, relatively speaking. So uh, why uh, why your entry into salmon aquaculture, Luke? Well, this might make a bit of sense about the long um, um, uh, spruiking of Tasmania is that um, I've come into the role uh, seven months ago after being the head of the state's tourism industry for the last 12 and a half years, so um, which perhaps, you know, the elements of the passion for the, for the state um, come through. But um, so, yeah, I did that. Um, I mean, the biggest industries in the state um, and certainly the most scrutinised industries are really um, tourism, aquaculture, um, a little bit of forestry and agriculture. So it's kind of three or four of these major sort of um, industries that capture a lot of attention because of the scale of them. Um, a lot of, I guess, um, scrutiny and and that borders into criticism probably more so in, in agriculture than tourism but it's still there so um so i guess uh being the head of the state's tourism body for the last 12 years you you certainly learn to deal with that scrutiny and and prosecute a pretty um uh, and try and prosecute an argument and that you know a lot of the community doesn't um necessarily agree on there's a lot of Tasmanians very protective of um what we've got down here and rightly so so 
when you're the face of that industry, you kind of get used to having to put ideas forward or, you know, or having to defend um, uh, decisions made by the industry or government. And um, it kind of, I guess, boded well for some of the challenges that aquaculture is dealing with. And um, after being that gig for a long time and, and tourism hit, um, was hit very hard, obviously, by COVID. So uh, certainly did an extra couple of years there, wasn't quite expecting and time for a change, time to do something different. And I guess the small community like Tasmania and that political government lobbying class that we've got, you spend a lot of time talking and um, a lot of us would sit and look at the way the salmon industry, which until five, six years ago was seen as this extraordinarily great, wonderful Tasmanian story of, of innovation, entrepreneurialism and, and just celebrate it. And it had just been um, effectively systematically attacked by over, over three or four years and um, kind of reached a point where after, you know, sort of a lot of us sort of sitting there and felt like, well, you're going to have a crack at doing something different. And for another industry that you fundamentally believe in for the good of the state and good of the community you live in, um, this is one that you probably, you know, test myself on and, and be challenged by. So um, extraordinarily different. I, I was grasping at straws in the early days, trying to find comparisons. And the, really the only one is that they are in Tasmania and a lot of, and they're in the same regional communities, um, tourism and aquaculture of, you know, the two biggest industries in most of the towns that Salmon's in. And um, but beyond that, incredibly different. So it's been a, an extraordinary learning curve. Um, you know, the, the science and regulation, which obviously where I've come from, is not a major part of what they do. Um, the scale of the industry, I went from having 2,000 members in Tourism Hospital, a lot of them small mum and dad operators running their little B&Bs and tour operators, to now having effectively three members um three companies um in our industry so very different how the structure of the industry is operated the politics is quite different um but there's still this fundamental connection to place um pride of the people who work in the industries and and again as some you know as a tasmanian who, who loves the place um incredible importance for the uh for the viability of some of these communities around the state that um is just uh, so self-evident whenever you go into them. Um, you know, the salmon aquaculture is the is the hero of you know regional communities that without it would, would barely be viable, and uh, and I guess that's what drives a lot of the lot of the approach I take to the role. So you mentioned the uh, the size of the sector, and uh, I think I've read that you know it's been about thirty years uh, that, that the sector has been active in in the state. Can you describe the, the size of it now, just the number of people, production value, just to get us uh, uh, an idea of the, the yeah. scale? Yeah, so when I mean, you're right, if it's about 30 years, it's interesting reading the history um, of the industry that um, was always earmarked as a really great opportunity for Tasmania, purely for the waters and, and the climate. Um, and you read you know, attempts and discussions going back to the 19th century about the ocean of, uh, of growing um, fish on scale. But uh, it was really from the 80s that the industry was pioneered and, and again, as rationalised throughout the 90s and the, the early 2000s around three companies, um, uh, Tassel, uh, Hewan and, and Petuna. Um, and, uh, you know, as I said, a, a kind of that was a really great celebrated story and, and still is um, for most Tasmanians and because it, it evolved so uh, so, you know, in a period of Tasmania where we're going through a real economic renewal um, over the sort of late 90s, 2000s, um, these three companies kind of were seen as generally world-class. They were creating a product that was celebrated um, and embraced by Australians and very much part of this straight state's identity and brand. So so we're now, um, you know, hanging around the 80 to 85,000 tonnes per annum. Um, 
almost entirely for a domestic market. I mean, 10, 10 15% exported, but it's really a domestic orientated um, uh, industry. Um, I keep getting one of the interesting facts I always find is that Australians eat around two, two and a half kilos of salmon per person. And Europe and North Americans, I think it's more than double, triple that. So there's, you know, there is huge growth potential just from Australian domestic market. But I'm also, you know, consistently being told by the people who look after Tasmania's trade networks about the, the enormous potential um, for, for particularly Asia um, around its export product. It's just, you know, the scale of whether we can meet that demand going forward. So, so 80 to 85,000, uh, the industry's concentrated on uh, essentially the southeast of the state with sort of, um, sort of what I'm almost secondary uh, production sources around the state in different parts. So it's all over the island um, in waterways. So um, each region is effectively covered in some degree or another, but, um, but predominantly in the southeast, which is kind of to the to the southeast of Hobart, um, the capital city. Um, what else would say? $1.3 billion of economic activity for the state. Um, that's the state's largest primary industry now. Um, it's Australia's largest seafood sector. And it's employs around five thousand Tasmanians directly and indirectly. So, um, you know, around half that's with the three companies directly, and about the same again through supply chains. And, and as I said, the, the importance of the economic um, contribution it makes to some of these communities uh, um, exponentially through uh, the you know the retail hospitality sectors of these communities. So, um, it's a it's a big big deal for Tassie, and that's why it gets so much scrutiny. Let's you you alluded to it a bit, but most of your product is for domestic. Um, some yeah. of it is exported. Um, so I'm interested to know if there is a heck of an opportunity to grow seafood consumption in uh, in Australia and and in Tasmania. What kind of uh, marketing strategies do the companies or um, Salmon Tasmania or other seafood uh, associations have in, in their bank to promote? Uh, not just salmon consumption, but seafood consumption. And I have seen, I think, video of some kind of unique food trucks and food vans uh, 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 owned by a few of the companies as well. So can you tell me about some of the initiatives? Yeah, so um, Australians, the Australian seafood market, I mean, it's it's the reason I suspect why we, we, we haven't fully uh, got the same level of, of consumption of agriculture is that we just have been spoiled by an extraordinary wild fishery resource for, um, for generations and Australians, um, you know, just um, love of seafood is just uh, ingrained in the culture of the of place. And, and I think what has is increasingly spiralling is that this transition now away from um, wild fisheries, uh, whether through regulation or some of the con concentration of, uh, of the businesses and the market prices, just the sheer affordability of it, that more and more Australians are going to increasingly look at agricultural product and and salmon's obviously the established uh, species to be able to access. So, you know, again, most, uh, about two thirds of the sales are through the two major retailers in Australia, um, Morris and Coles, which I think is probably consistent with the way it's structured in, in North America from what I read. And then third through um, obviously the restaurants and buying retail and and through some of the wholesalers. So um, the company's main way, I guess, of selling um, is through particularly through the partnerships with those two major retailers. And and there's a really close collaboration um, which I've been 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 witness to between between the two companies and um, between the two major retailers and the providers to make sure that that supplies. Assistant, um, again, on the ground, locally in Tasmania, it's a little different. We're trying, you know, that's what I think you're leading to with the food trucks. Again, Tasmania is a bit different. Um, we're a local domestic market that most Tasmanians just accept salmon's part of their lives. So 
um, where they pick it up at the local shop or pick it up at the local truck shop. Um, it's just almost omnipresent across the state. But with the major domestic markets, it's it's you know predominantly through either wholesalers or the two major retailers and um, an Australians capacity to you know just make it part of their part of their uh, you know weekly shopping bills to just pick up in salmon. Yeah, you know, the the companies have done different approaches over the years around how they market. Uh, one of the ones you know we've seen over the years, you know, trying to make an alternative effectively to, to chicken as a part of the weekly staple diet. Um, again, trying to shift Australians' consumer habits. You're seeing some different approaches now around, um, obviously, the, the the health benefits and superfood elements that sort of fit features in the strategy. But, but so to me, it seems to be this ongoing transition that Australians love seafood. Um, salmon's seen as a, as a easy-to-cook uh, staple uh, that can be dressed up and, and enjoyed, you know, special occasions. There's also a great for a week, you know, Wednesday night um, after work dinner, and and that just seems to be increasingly ingrained. And and as as some of our wild fisheries become more and more, I guess, unobtainable for a variety of reasons, um, salmon and and potentially other aquaculture species are going to be the ones that fill that void. A renewable plant-based protein, Imperial Seventy Five, is the sustainable choice in a changing world. This high-protein corn concentrate creates more space in the diet by reducing the need for fish meal or other protein concentrates. Efficiency and performance with an eye on the future. That's the Imperial 75 way. Learn more at imperial75.com. I'm going to ask you to help me bust a myth. And we could probably spend a whole episode on uh, busting myths that you you read online, but this one, uh, and, and it's fantastic that I actually get to speak to somebody from Australia because what you can read online over the years is this, that, and this is a quote, that farm salmon is banned in Australia. That, that is the quote, that, that farm raised salmon is banned in Australia. So can you help shed some light on this? Because I'm talking to you and you're producing 85,000 tons of salmon in Australia. <laughs> We do separate it. I've made that point about we do separate ourselves from the rest of Australia. So we just, uh, maybe that's where they've got confused. But uh, no, certainly no. Um, and uh, that's certainly not for ju- just a Tasmanian thing either. It's, um, I mean, there are the, um, aquacultures, you know, and other species, prawns. Um, um, Tastow, one of our companies, is, is now the largest producer of um, farmer of prawns in, in northern Australia. And they've just obtained. Um, the farms for Barramundi um, in northwest Tasmania, uh, sorry, northwest Australia. So certainly not true to show it. So the farm aquaculture is banned in, in Australia. Um, and as you say, 85,000 tons. They might not be saying that aquaculture is banned, but they're saying that the consumption of or the import of. So is there an import ban? Oh, an import ban. No, 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 there isn't. Um, it's just not a major presence. But um, I mean, not that there's a ban on, 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 no, and a lot of our seafood products are brought into Australia from other parts of the region as well. So, no, I don't think that's quite right. Um, I'm, I'm learning rapidly that some of the messaging that happens around this industry, particularly online, uh, seems to um, get multiplied multiple, and perhaps they take a slight element of truth about a particular species or a particular issue or a particular short-term um, restriction from years ago and it becomes a narrative um, that's accepted across the space. But... No, not I don't know what they're referring specifically to, but um, no, we, don't, we certainly don't have a ban on I think imports, and I don't think certainly don't have a ban on actually growing it. I uh, I figured as much, and uh, again, there's probably a whole episode we could devote to cracking all this uh, nonsense on the web. But uh, thanks for for clearing that <laughs> one up. Well, for us. I, 
when I when as I said I was coming into this industry on a knowledge a low knowledge base and I, in the first week I did have to sit down with some of the industry experts and did have to run off some of these questions myself with them um uh the chicken question um the dye question um so uh some of them uh how much uh, what's under the pens um that was one I was particularly pleased to see and there are some pens in particularly beautiful water um in around Tasmania where you can see see the base underneath on a clear day so I was very reassured to see under a pen that there. Is absolutely no pile of uh, of uh, fish uh, poo um, excrement uh, piled up, as some of us might have been led to believe if you read everything you see on the internet. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's, let's talk on that then. Why uh, in Tasmania are the waters good for salmon farming? Uh, the temperatures, the the clarity. What what makes Tasmania a good place to grow salmon? Yeah, two th well, three elements: uh, quality of the water, but particularly the climate and um, and the energy recharge. Uh, just get um, high levels of oxygen injected into, particularly the southeast. We said, um, and and again, it's interesting that they obviously knew this for a long, long time, and uh, always confident they'd be able to build an agriculture sector. It's just I think getting the scale of it to a point where you got sufficient um, production supplies chains. The industry went through a rocky sort of introduction and uh, but um by you know again talking to some this is one of the prime places on the planet to be able to do it and in a world that's increasingly going to have to look for sustainable agriculture when you have parts that are able to do it uh, it's how you i guess cultivate it and manage it and responsibly do it but certainly don't want to give it up and i think that's one of the inherent debates we've got in tasmania is about um um, we do have a market to meet and we do have an economic opportunity it's uh, and we do have a natural environment that um, facilitates it so it's kind of been bringing it together into an industry that's that we've got today so let's move on to the more challenging questions and you alluded to this in your introduction over the last three four years there's been a bit more of a conversation and debate around the sector locally and and perhaps nationally so what what is going on politically down uh, down in Australia and Tasmania uh, we read you know some in the trade news the global trade news about uh, yeah. what's going on but can you give us your perspective on uh, where we are yeah so I mean I'm, I mentioned in the context of what I when I did the spill on Tassie that it's an extraordinary part of the world and you know don't be biased about that i think anyone who's any, knows any awareness of tasmania and know its history and know it's um know its uniqueness um as a landscape um appreciate that um it's something that's clear very closely guarded and very carefully protected and um you don't end up the landmass without 50 percent of it under some form of native protection without um, a lot of campaigning and advocacy, and, and Tasmania has an outstanding uh, environmental advocacy group. I'll use the word outstanding um, deliberately. They they have uh, cultivated um, a, a effectively an industry that's incredibly effective um, and have been really successful. Um, you know, they've had some extraordinary wins um, as over generations now, and um, the. And, you know, as a Tasmanian and Australian and global citizen, you, you look at some things they've achieved, um, stopping dams that, um, you know, saw, um, you know, World Heritage Area rivers and landscapes uh, from being flooded, um, uh, protection of old growth forests uh, that are, you know, now carbon banks for the state. So we can legitimately claim to be a, a carbon bank and a net zero emitter. Um, so we've got a great conservation movement um, that have done a lot over the years, but they are relentless and they do um, almost tactfully and to keep relevant, just shift from industry to industry. And, um, you know, for, as growing up as, as a Tasmanian, uh, it was all about old growth logging. Um, I came on the back of the hydro dams debate, which is, I guess, where a lot of them cut their teeth. 
Um, and effectively, old growth logging about 5, 10, 15 years ago became less of a, a, a I guess, a barbecue stopper um, issue, became less prominent. And that's because they had achieved a lot. Um, and the forest industry in the state would you know, have effectively significantly restructured because a lot of the areas that um, it had been operated in have been were effectively protected. So once that win had happened, my sense and my observation is they needed the next battleground and aquaculture as presented. And um, it's pretty clear to me, I think, as looking at the way the industry uh, is focused, a lot of scrutiny and a lot of the issues have been picked up from what is a clearly global campaign. Um, and a lot of the messaging and the activism is the same from globally, but in Tasmania, it's got a local element as well. Um, you know, uh, the reality is we have some extraordinarily beautiful waterways, and um, you know, it's a very easy line to run that you know we're damaging them, or that we are negatively impacting upon um, these waterways or people's vista and view. Um, so, so it's just become a focus. So, it, it's been an interesting dynamic. Um, it's happened quickly. Um, and it's fair to say the industry didn't respond to it at all well. Um, and, you know, part of the reason I'm sitting here is um, part of that, but they would, they would acknowledge that for a variety of reasons. I think also the, the pace and the organisation of it. And again, and from that, our government, I don't think, responded to it at all well as either. Um, government are very supportive of the industry, um, I think, fell in the trap of being too def- uh, apologetic almost for the aquaculture industry rather than defend and explain the good it did. So once again, to that cycle, very hard to spin um, and to move out of it, and um, and that's kind of left us in a position now where we know the vast majority of Tasmanians, according to polling, um, are either ambivalent towards the industry because it's out, it's, they don't see it, they don't engage with it. It's in communities that they don't be part of, um, so they don't really have a, a a strong vested view on it one way or the other. We have a, a percentage of the population who are extremely supportive of the industry and my sense is they're the people who are in those communities or do understand the economic value or do understand Tasmania's economic vulnerability and that we've got, got to stand by those industries. And then we've got about 20, 25% of the population who might, I, I feel, have probably accepted the narrative that's been presented to them. And, and that 20, 25%, you could almost apply that over so many other industries in the state, forestry, mining, tourism to a degree. Um, they're just, uh, there's just an element of population here who are just, absolutely prioritise conservation above all else and a lot of them have um, either are either economically secure themselves or have moved to the state with economic security. So they put less of a focus, I guess, so much on the on the economic um, vulnerability of these communities where these industries exist and, and that's the narrative that, that underpins a lot of what we're dealing with. And there, no doubt there are issues that the industry has been caught up in. Um, you know, one at the moment, Macquarie Harbour on the West Coast, um, where it becomes a very easy target to focus on aquaculture um, as you know, as having a detrimental impact on the environment and, and that kind of becomes accepted narrative, as I say, because we have just a very good conservation movement, very organised, very good at communications, very good at social media, and they just kept pursuing this uh, pursuing this message, um, you know, irrespective of whatever the science or regulatory framework or, or facts are. Um, they'll just keep creating a narrative that um, that eventually starts to starts to become truth for a lot of people. You mentioned uh, Macquarie Harbour, and, and there's one specific issue around, I believe it's called the Magian Skate. Magian um, Skate, and, yes. and, Yeah, and enough uh, that you have dedicated uh, a full webpage on your website to uh, 
Macquarie Harbor and, and the skate. So if there's anybody that's listening to this podcast that wants to learn a little more, I see you have a video up about the research that's going on as well. But do you want to add anything to uh, to what uh, your organization, Salmon Tasmania, is, is is contributing to the issue? Yeah, so so a bit of context to Macquarie Harbor. It's it's a uh, it's a extremely remote part of the world. Um, it's it's in a town called Strawn, which is a three and a half hour drive from Hobart, the capital city. Um, a very economically vulnerable um, part of the world, um, and you know, small community uh, in an extraordinarily amazing landscape. Um, it's an incredibly beautiful part of the of the world. Macquarie Harbour is. Um, Again, it's a it's a it's a large basin type um, waterway fjord um, system where it's got very deep, um, very deep channels with very narrow um, inlets and outlets from natural um, water flow or from the ocean. And what that leads is leads creates a a top layer of the harbour um, that is generally uh, fresh water, reduced salt water. So it's very effective for salmon growing. And the industry was pioneered over there about thirty. You know, 25, 30 years ago, very early days, um, people identified it would be a great place to grow salmon. And the industry has effectively become the economic bedrock of, of that community. Um, its production is not huge. It's about 12, 13% of the total production in the state. So it's not a massive farm by any stretch. Nine, uh, nine 10,000 tonnes is produced over there every year, but it is incredibly important to that community. Think about that landscape. Of course, it's got a uh, it's got some remarkable wildlife, and one of them it is a skate, a Magene skate, which is only found in this one waterway. It was found other parts of Tasmania, but it's a group, eventually you know, its population is concentrated and reduced down. That it's endemic in this harbour, and and one of the cited examples about its further population decline is the lack of oxygen. And uh, we know, and all the science shows, there is a number of reasons for that: warming waters. Uh, there's a hydro dam that uh, releases into this harbour. Um, there are potentially introduced species and, you know, because of, you know, species moving further south as the weather's warming and there's aquaculture. And so there's a whole bunch of causes for this and we're one of them, but the narrative naturally falls on us because, um, you know, we've got some strong voices out there who, who do jump, jump on aquaculture. So we've gone through a pretty difficult process the last six months to understand the science, understand what we can do to reduce our impact on on the skate and or, or identify what our impact is on the skate first and then make steps to to, to be able to step it up. Um, the industry is, uh, among other things, committed to do a you know, precedent oxygenation project. So we're taking the approach of saying if we know that we that our oxygen drawdown is a factor in the harbour, let's define it, let's quantify what that amount is and then let's work towards offsetting it. So we've got an oxygenator machine on the harbour, um, which will effectively be injecting about five tonnes of, um, of oxygen to the harbour every day, which is effectively what the salmon and nitrogen drawdown is uh, on it as well. So um, that's our first step. Um, and again, part of that is about getting ahead of it, the, 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 the debate. So we can legitimately hand on heart say that we are, we are removing or reducing or offsetting the contribution we make to the underlying concerns of the skate, but, but also be able to demonstrate legitimately that if as operating in that harbour in the long run that uh, we are committed to being as sustainable as we truly can and, and you know, being able to say that you're offsetting your complete oxygen drawdown in the harbour is, is, is as close to that as we can, as we can get. So, um, yeah, again, if you're interested, it's a, the oxygenation project. So, uh, first time it's been done for these reasons in Australia. Um, there have been oxygenation projects done all over the world, and but for a purpose of, um, I guess, oxygenating for 
not salmon production, but for actual just pure um, uh, sustainability purposes. It's the first time it's been done on the scale, and it's a six million dollar investment by the industry. So we're not we're not taking it lightly. It's a it's a significant step by us, and and again, it'd be a bit pretty fascinating sort of case study to to show how you know again aquaculture can coexist with in an environment that's um that's under pressure from a whole range of factors and not least of which is warming waters thanks very much for the insight luke okay we're we're wrapping it up here but um what i i had done earlier in the episode was talk to one of our young professionals in british columbia um and uh, michelle france uh, who is the co-founder of the uh, young salmon farmers of bc uh, asked me to relay a question for you so so here's what she was asking um the demographic in BC is very young, majority under 35. So she's wondering, do you have uh, similar young demographics in, in your sector? And is that young demographic uh, looking to organize, to communicate their business of salmon aquaculture? And, and as she put it, also challenge the salmon farming companies on their performance goals as well. So do you see this movement from uh, young professionals in Tasmania? Uh, I don't see the movement scale. Um, I think... One thing about our industry is there's a real tight connectedness between it within the companies and because there's only three of them and because the nature of Tasmanian communities, um, people who work in the industry and work for these companies feel quite invested. And and also, I guess the pressure we've been under as an industry for the last few years, my sense talking to particularly a lot of the young professionals, um, and that's whether they're you know the vets and agricultural scientists or just the young blokes working on the, uh, working on the farms in these regional communities, they are highly emotionally invested in what they do and they're highly defensive and supportive of the intent of the industry. So I don't I don't get a sense of an organised structure around, um, I guess, challenging the industry. I know there's a lot of passion and energy around wanting the industry to um, consistently do better in innovation and a real pride in what they do. So um, as I say, I think it might, might just be the nature of how we structured as a relatively small, you know, relatively connected community um, in Tassie that they do, but... But again, you know, my sense, we've got this extraordinary now generation of young Tasmanians who are going to have long-term careers who are entering the industry at all levels. Um, and, and you know, to me, that's an exciting bit. Um, I guess if you look at the last 20, 30 years, perhaps a lot of Canadians have, have come over and helped set this industry up and, and, you know, people have fallen into the industry from different careers in Tasmania. What we're now, you know, 20, 30 years in is seeing a lot of people who are leaving school, leaving university, their first job or first professional role is in salmon and they'll have 40, 50 year careers hopefully in the industry and, and that's exciting that they'll be able to put a uh, Tasmanian stamp and put their own identity on the industry um, uh, over the years to come. I tell you, young professionals would love to do an exchange, Canadians coming down there during the summer, but also Australians leaving to Canada. You can't go to a ski hill on the west coast of Canada without rubbing shoulders <laughs> with, I think, every Australian. So uh, it's a nice time to do an exchange. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. Well, that's legitimately, I, I one of the most pleasing things I did was in October, I mentioned to you before we went on air, um, went to the uh, GSA's conference in St. John and had the opportunity to tour uh, Cook's facilities Um and again, someone who's completely new to the industry, just to see uh, the comparisons, but also uh, some slight little variations between the two industries and the way people talk about the industries uh, are different. So again, if anyone is legitimately keen to that, to do that and looking for a way to trigger on the uh, Tasmanian salmon experience as part of their Australian summer tour next year, um, reach out. I'm sure we can find a way to facilitate that one of the companies. Again, um, 
as good as a uh, as a, a ski field in Canada might be, so too is a uh, Tassie summer in, uh, on uh, the beaches of uh, Sydney or indeed Tasmania. You might get somebody calling you up on that offer, so that's great, Luke. Uh, where can people get a hold of you or learn more about uh, Sam and Tasmania? Yeah, as you mentioned, the website. Look, the two most effective resources for us uh, is our website, salmontaz.au, so um, salmontaz.au, and just if uh, to get a bit of sense of the industry and the scale and also follow the links from, from that to the three company sites, which have a lot of the sustainability data and a lot of the technical information for, the, for how the industry operates. And again, if you're also, we're quite active on, on social media around particularly some of those policy and political issues. So um, search for us on particularly on Facebook, Sam and Taz Mania, and um, you can kind of get follow uh, some of the developments, um, the oxygenation project and other things. And don't hesitate to reach out through those channels to, to me or to a member of our team. Luke, thanks again for your time and all the best for the future. No worries. Thanks, Ian. Thank you for listening to this episode of Salmon Farming Inside and Out. If you have a comment on today's episode or would like to suggest a topic for future episodes, connect with Aquaculture North America on Twitter, now known as X, or through our LinkedIn and Facebook pages. This podcast is sponsored by Imperial 75, a Cargill-branded feed product. As a high-purity, high-protein corn concentrate, Imperial 75 gives you more freedom to formulate, more freedom to innovate, and the power to achieve more. Find out more at imperial75.com.